1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nolpethanchel. This is the time of year when plans to start a diet begin to hatch. Coming up, we talk about how there's a movement among some American dietitians who have urged their field to reimagine the way they guide clients. We hear from dietitian Jessica Wilson, who co-hosts My Black Body podcast. She says dietitians need to be more inclusive and acknowledge the harm done by a field that lacks representation. Our conversation later first. This week, many residents will celebrate Christmas. Now, how was the holiday celebrated many years ago in our state? The Webb Dean Stevens House in Wethersfield, Connecticut will host a virtual event this week on the spirit of Christmas past in New England. Joining us now on Zoom is Ken Torino, Manager of Community Partnerships and Resource Development with Historic New England. It's the oldest and largest regional heritage organization in the country. Ken, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you for having
1: me. Now, if you have a question about how Christmas was celebrated in Connecticut, you can join us to 888 That's eight 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 seven two zero wmpr Or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So, Ken, I understand Connecticut didn't make Christmas an official state holiday until 1845. So can you tell us what Christmas looked like before then?
2: Um, uh, Actually, yes. Uh, Going back to the earliest settlements, and we have to remember, New England was different because there were other traditions in Florida, Texas, New Mexico, and California with the Spanish and the Catholic influence. But in New England, we had the Puritans, and they did not celebrate Christmas. In fact, it was outlawed in the 17th century in both Massachusetts and Connecticut. Um, I know Portsmouth, New Hampshire had laws against it in the 18th century. And why was that? Because in England, these were rowdy celebrations, which included dancing, giving, begging gifts, and lots and lots of drinking. So that's pretty much the, that, that feeling persisted well into the 18th century, um, and then it, you see things start to change and develop. Um, it's still a work day in the 19th century. Um, I have accounts from, it's still a school day uh, from the Litchfield Academy. The girls are writing in their diary, Thursday was Christmas, an unpleasant day, went to school, decided my usual lessons. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it starts to change with, different people coming into New England and Connecticut who bring different traditions with them. And it really catches on in the 19th century.
1: So tell me a little bit about the people that helped to change the tradition here to make it uh, a time to gather with family and to not work.
2: Ah, okay, that's a, a good question. So what happens is that as Different people with different religious backgrounds come in in the 19th century. They start having some religious services Um, And it's by reading about some customs and traditions that people first learn about them Um, Our American Christmas today is a compilation of different traditions from other cultures European for the most part also invented traditions so In America, and particularly in New England and Connecticut, people first start reading about things like Christmas trees in publications, and the Unitarians played a big part in promoting Christmas. So people first read about this new fad, which started out in Germany. um, And by 1800 in Germany, it becomes a national practice. And then where do they first see them? But at Sunday schools or Sabbath schools or church fairs so these church fairs were just coming out of the season unfortunately curtailed because of COVID. of these church fairs that's one of the oldest traditions we have in america and that's where people went to see their first christmas tree generally Mm.
1: now what about other traditions when we think about uh you know santa claus or hanging stockings what did you find out ken
2: ah well interesting you know uh, santa claus is an american invention uh, that comes out of New York, um, and I'm still doing research on this. It'll be interesting to see if it, if if uh, people in Connecticut uh, liken to it sooner than other parts of New England. But in um, 1806, the New York Historical Society adopts St. Nicholas's feast day and St. Nicholas as their patron saint and starts promoting him Again, to get away from the rowdy celebrations, New York and Philadelphia were known for people literally breaking down doors and demanding food, drink. It goes back to those early English traditions the Puritans were trying to get to. They would break down doors, demand you know food, and they won't go until they get some, and they won't go until they get some. So Santa is, St. Nicholas becomes synonymous with Santa Claus, and it's Washington Irving, the author, and then... People know an account of a visit from St. Nicholas, which gets published in the 1820s, where this starts to grow. But they are actively promoting this as a family-centered holiday, and you can see it slowly develop and grow over the 19th century. Now, Christmas stockings, you asked about, they are actually a Dutch and an Italian ritual that we glom on bring into our holiday. And I find accounts of those um, very, very early on in the first quarter and first half of the um, 19th century. And um, it's really interesting. I have a wonderful, wonderful quote that I use from a little girl um, in um, Hartford, Connecticut, writing about her Christmas stocking. And uh, it's just it's it's short. So if I could just read that to you, I think you might enjoy it. Sure. Um, And that is, um, bear with me one second because I thought I had that right in front of me, and I don't.
1: well, while you look uh, for it, I'll right. reset and let right. our listeners know that we're talking with Ken Torino, Manager of Community Partnerships and Resource Development with Historic New England. As we learn more about the spirit of Christmas past in New England, the Web Dean Stevens House in Wethersfield is hosting a virtual event actually today uh, with uh, Ken Torino. You can look go to our website at wmpr.org slash where we live uh, for more information on that. Ken, did you find the quote?
2: I did, yes. And this is from Rose Terry of Hartford, Connecticut. Uh, found in her stocking in 1834, quote, a dollar bill, a quarter of a dollar, a book, and a paper of raisins. And she wrote, I think St. Nicholas was very generous. So the, the Christmas stocking actually, you know, is mentioned in Clement C. Moore's poem uh, from the 1820s, and actually an earlier poem I found from 1821. So that, you know, comes in fairly early um, as part of the uh, the tradition.
1: If you have a question about how Christmas was celebrated in New England, you can join us, to 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at where we live. So Connecticut, again, made Christmas an official state holiday in 1845. When did the other New England states catch up, Ken?
2: <laughs> well, you know, that I have a wonderful quote from Henry Wadsworth Longfellow saying, not a very Merry Christmas here. We are in a transition state. That old Puritan feeling prevents it from being a hearty holiday, though every year makes it so. And that's from the 1840s. And uh, Massachusetts is second to last, and that's in uh, 1856, Maine being last in 1858. So it's uh, it's it's really interesting to see. Hey, you know, we used to have blue laws in Massachusetts, and I can remember those until not that long ago, really.
1: Oh yeah, Connecticut too. <laughs> Connecticut so too,
2: right, yeah, so, You uh, know, it's that Puritan feeling that still persisted.
1: How much did uh, Charles Dickens' A Christmas Carol change Americans' views of of Christmas? I understand he he did a, a tour when uh, when that book came out, a reading from A Christmas Carol.
2: He did. He was a rock star. Um, He was an absolute rock star. People lined up for days of all classes. He cut across all levels. Um, His first public reading of A Christmas Carol was in 1867 in Boston um, at the Parker House. And then he toured around America and did it. So that had a huge influence. Um, But that, you know, that, brought into the Victorian celebration of Christmas, the two uh, elements, it becomes really, really excessive. um, And also, though, at the same time, remembrance of the poor and helping out those less fortunate. So he helps to tie those two together. They were there percolating, but he brings them together. And then that was so popular, Dickens wrote four other Christmas uh, stories um, after that. Um, So he did, he played a a major role. So again, it's by publications and reading about some of these traditions that people first learn about them. Um, You know, with the Christmas tree, for example, the earliest ones, the first printed image we have of a Christmas tree is 1836, uh, done by a German author in a Boston publication. And it's a treetop table. There's a wonderful illustration. And they don't look like the trees we're used to set atop a tree, and gifts were hung on the tree. They weren't, uh, they weren't placed, and they weren't wrapped. That doesn't come around to about 1900. Mm. Um, and if they were too big to be hung on the tree, they'd be put on the floor. Um, but, you know, again, it's not until later, like by ni- late 1880s, 90s, people started having floor-to-ceiling trees. So that's a shift. <laughs> So I hope you're seeing, you know, Christmas is always adapting and changing and we're bringing in new traditions and and so on.
1: Yeah. So I'm curious, uh, any traditions that have come out of Connecticut around the holidays that you can tell us about, Ken?
2: Um, Well, you know, a couple things. Uh, One thing that I should mention is, you know, Christmas cards develop in England in the 1840s. Um, Louis Prang of Boston, another German, the Germans played a big role in promoting Christmas, had a company, Prangs, which did Christmas cards. And they were small, like business cards, with things like robin's eggs and lilies on them, not things we associate with Christmas. That develops over time. But what's noted about Connecticut is in that uh, Northford, Connecticut, became nationally known for Christmas cards uh, during the 1870s. Uh, And these cards would be glittering and trimmed with fringe. And they were so successful that about 25 competitors opened up shop in the Northfield area. So for nearly a decade, uh, they were renowned as the Christmas card center of the world. And that's competing with Germany, England, and Boston. So that's kind of, uh, you know, something that Connecticut can claim. And, you know, I wouldn't say it's a Connecticut, a lot of these, specifically Connecticut traditions, but a lot of us, wherever we live, you know, we remember maybe as children or taking our children or grandchildren to department stores um, to look at the windows. And that was popular and still is in New York with Macy's, but all over. And in Hartford, um, Jay Fox and Company, the department store, Um, was renowned. And I've seen many images of the beautiful window displays. And I've talked to people who remember very fondly being taken there. Um, And, you know, many communities have their community Christmas tree, or, you know, people light up their lights uh, on their houses. And there's a wonderful one in Fairfield, Connecticut, Wonderland at Roseland, which for 12 years has been raising money for the Shriners Children Hospital. And, you know, and everything's had to adapt with COVID. They're now, you know, they've raised this money uh, for years by people coming to visit, and people still are, but, you know, less so because of COVID, and they're actually doing things online for the hospital now. Mm-hmm. So, you know, uh, what's happened now in, in in America is that we've, you know, I don't want to say we we've, you know, all become one because each of us come from different Uh, Heritages, and you know, my heritage is Italian. So my favorite meal of the year is Christmas Eve with the seven fishes. Mm. I can't wait. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So many of us, no matter where you are, Connecticut, Arizona, you have your own family traditions, which are part of the the ceremony and tradition, but many of them are based on food. It's really interesting
1: when you started talking ken we about the how people would ask for um you know they're begging for food or or something if they were less fortunate and now we have this tradition of gift giving where it's all about buying things for um our family and friends i'm just wondering if you can talk about that evolution
2: yeah you know we talk about the commercialization of christmas um i can tell you from the very beginning with the promotion of Santa Claus and the Christmas tree, as they both are intimately connected with gift giving. It was there from the beginning. I have accounts of Santa appearing at these fairs in the 1840s and 50s, and then shops. He would actually, the newspaper announced, uh, newspapers would announce that St. Nicholas has taken up residency at the old curiosity shop where he will supply any of his young friends with anything most most. Useful and ornamental at very low prices. Commercialization of there was here from the beginning. I have ads from 1806, hawking wares for Christmas and New Year's. New Year's was as big a holiday um, as Christmas was. But gift giving by the 1850s shifts to Christmas. Uh, and we think we're mad. I, I have an account of a woman going out shopping in the 1850s and she buys 147 presents in five days. We think we're crazy. (laughs) Um, It was there from the absolute beginning. Mm. So, um, you know, we might like to think that some, you know, some things are um, age old, or some things are newer, and we're just more crass. But no, you know, I will say One thing is the selling of the holiday, and I think your listeners will know this, comes much earlier every year. I go into stores at uh, Halloween, and I'm seeing Christmas decorations. Now, that was a 20th century (laughs) invention. (laughs) Opening up shops on Thanksgiving Day, you know, was was a 21st addition to the holiday, which I'm not so sure is a good one.
1: Yeah, although I feel like this year people have embraced that uh, something to to look forward to uh, decorating their homes, having a much smaller gathering this year. But I want to thank uh, Ken Torino, Manager of Community Partnerships and Resource Development with Historic New England. Again, he's uh, hosting a virtual talk along with the Web Dean Stevens House, all about our Christmas past here in New England. You can learn more about that talk at wmpr.org slash where we live. Ken, thanks so much.
2: Thank you for having me.
1: This is where we live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nalpa Coming up, we pivot to something on the minds of many as a new year approaches. Are you thinking about a new diet? There have been calls from some American dietitians that the field of nutrition needs to improve representation in order to help people from different cultures and identities. We talk to dietitians after the break, and we want to hear from you, too. You can join us, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is where we live. I'm Lucy nalpa broadcasting remotely. Have you been to a dietitian to help you lose weight? You've probably gotten the same advice many Americans have received. Portion control, food that's healthy, but let's be honest, kind of bland. There's a movement in the field of nutrition to improve representation to better serve clients who come from different cultures and identities. It was the focus of a recent New York Times story. Timely, in a season when Americans think about diet and what it means to be healthy. Coming up, we'll hear from a Connecticut dietitian. But first, joining us now from the West Coast on zoom, Jessica Wilson, dietitian in private practice and co host of my black body podcast. Jessica, welcome to the show.
3: Thanks so much.
1: Our listeners can also join us, 888-720-9677. We'd love to hear your experiences and uh, going to a nutritionist or a dietitian. I might share a little of my personal story as well. But Jessica, I wanted to find out what drew, drew you to work in nutrition and what did you experience?
3: Um, I think it actually sums up perhaps what you were talking about at the top of the hour and in the intro, I was pretty, you know, traditionally diet focus going into the field of nutrition. I was looking at it from a, I get to talk about food all day and help people lose weight if they want to. And then quickly realized that those messages can cause harm. Mm. Oh, when you were studying, what was that like? Uh, were you uh,
1: somebody that I guess uh, stood out in the room?
3: Perhaps stood out. Yeah, I was consistently the only black person in my undergrad program, and my unpaid internship, and then in grad school. And through all of that, I really developed my critical, you know, questioning and lens for how these messages are delivered and who really, you know, they are for and who they're not for.
1: So talk more about that when we think about American dietetics, if I'm saying that correctly, the field of Mm -hmm. nutrition, who are the people that have done the research? And who are the people represented?
3: Yes. So the research, as you can imagine, never, ever includes, you know, folks of color, unless we're looking at black and brown people, you know, and how, you know, quote unhealthy they are. How higher you know their rates of diabetes are compared to perhaps the standard you know white individual. But everything also that's missing is you know environmental factors, mm-hmm. uh, generational trauma, food insecurity. Those things are never taken into account. And so when we're looking at who you know our dietitian field is for, it primarily was to you know police. Black and brown diets, you know, Indian diets have too much white rice. Um, Mexican diets, you know, have carbohydrates that are rice and beans. So you have to be careful about, you know, those diets. And then the people who are primarily running the field right now are older white women. And they're very focused on, like, weight management and how to get, you know, dietitians to be more clinically focused rather than, you know, building relationship focused. (laughs)
1: mm <laughs> Again, uh, you're hearing Jessica Wilson, who's a registered uh, dietitian and private practice co host of my black body podcast as we talk about the field of nutrition, you can join us with a question or even uh, a personal account of what it was like for you, 888-720-9677 or find us on Facebook and Twitter, uh, at where we live. And so as you started your career, and you're making these observations, how did that change the way you practice, Jessica?
3: I would say well i know that we get zero training uh in trauma and also really in counseling which is very surprising to folks we're just supposed to step in and you know give our calories in calories out message and you know we never talked about you know food access we never talked about household dynamics we never talked about um you know just building relationships and sitting in the room with our clients so those are things that i had to learn on my own. And I would say that I learned a lot of that from uh, getting into the eating disorder field, which is more, you know, relationship focused, but also in all of these realms, I, you know, understood how weight focused, even, you know, in eating disorders, uh, the field is. And so having to undo a lot of that training in order to understand that thinness, you know, doesn't equal health, uh, losing weight is not always is not a you know good thing, as you all know, you know, diets don't work. Restriction um, over time is not how we get our nutrients and not healthy for our bodies. So it was just a lot of, you know, needing to seek out additional information, additional research to undo a lot of what I had been told.
1: When we think about the field today, uh, in the New York Times uh, story, uh, the noted that what seven out of 10 of the nation's registered dietitians are non-Hispanic white. And so talk mm-hmm. more about the calls that are coming from not only you, but other uh, colleagues who want representation, but also that acknowledgement that the, the way the field of nutrition um, has uh, recommended um, or given advice to people that has also done some some harm as well.
3: Definitely. And I would say that the field or, you know, the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics has done the, you know, we need more representation, but has done none of the, we, you know, need to take in all these additional factors into account when we're, you know, talking to people about food. There's been no discussion of, hey, these messages, you know, about, you know, cultural diets or weight loss or, you know, are lacking conceptualization of what you know, people's history is, you know, just hasn't come to the forefront as a priority to change. Mm.
1: When we think about going on diets or eating particular food, or even having the time to think about it, you know, especially Mm -hmm. in this pandemic, uh, so many people are just trying to figure out how am I going to pay my next bill? What Mm -hmm. am I going to feed my kids? And that that's something that needs to be addressed as well.
3: Absolutely. So, Uh, There are the, you know, traditional, you know, people who will, or dietitians who will work at food banks and they're even, they're talking about eat this, don't eat this from this food bank. Um, Perhaps here's how to cook a vegetable, but not ever a question of like, do you have access to a kitchen? Like, do you have, you know, time for any of these things? Is boxed macaroni and cheese, you know, the best way to make sure your family is actually fed rather than, you know, worrying about, like sodium or whatever it is. So um, also I haven't heard any, you know, be gentle with yourself, it's a pandemic. <laughs> like everybody's gaining weight and it's fine. There's just not any, you know, humanity in, you know, the fields and inevitably focusing on uh, superfoods and antioxidants and such, you know, is incredibly centering, you know, of people with privilege and, completely leaves out the majority of the population.
1: I'm glad you mentioned that Jessica because I you know for years we've heard you know emotional eating is not a good thing yeah. but during the pandemic you know there is this other message of you've got to take care of yourself you know mm-hmm. everyone is struggling and so how do how do how do dietitians reconcile that where uh, people are turning to food because it's mm-hmm. making
3: them feel good right so you know everybody in their sourdough starter you know canning lids were you know nearly out if not out at all of your hardware stores because people are really learning or turning to food as ways to have fun inside the house and i see in the eating disorder field they're finally saying it's fine to you know enjoy food and you know have it be one of your coping tools it's fine you know and also In the pandemic has been the first time in the eating disorder field where people have talked about it being okay and normal, you know, during a pandemic to gain weight, which inherently implies if it's not in a pandemic, you know, you shouldn't really be gaining weight. So it's just all these mixed messages um, from the field in general. And really, we're doing the best we can, you know, in a pandemic. So, you know, all of the quarantine 15 business can just, you know leave the conversation I've avoided saying that myself yeah I've not said it you were I was I was hesitant right there I was like do I bring that up because people probably haven't heard it yet oh you know (laughs)
1: You're hearing Jessica Wilson again on Zoom here on Where We Live. Again, she's a dietitian in private practice and co host of My Black Body podcast as we talk about the field of nutrition. You can join us too, 888 720 9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, you've mentioned eating disorders a couple of times, Jessica, and I'm mm-hmm. wondering if you could break it down for us because I, I feel like there's a lot of misunderstandings of, of what it means to have an eating disorder and who is affected
3: right and what an eating disorder looks like um i think this goes back to one of your original questions about who is centered in all of these conversations and of course we don't you know need to spend much time discussing that it's white women it's thin women it's affluent women uh, with access to treatment and care Uh, those are the folks who have been centered and have really been the face of what an eating disorder looks like, and specifically restrictive eating disorders, you know, look that way. Um, And that, you know, by and large in my personal practice is not the case, which is one of those things that I uh, started unlearning at the beginning because I would have a lot of folks who were just not eating food yet who were not the folks, you know, that were commonly told to us that would look like they weren't eating food, so oftentimes people are misdiagnosed or you know praised for their caloric restriction because it looks like they're trying to diet, and fully missed that uh, the black and brown folks who present with the same restriction and perhaps you know don't look like they have a restrictive eating disorder um, are by and large not diagnosed with an eating disorder when a white thin woman with the same symptoms. Um, is diagnosed.
1: Do you in- encounter a lot of clients who've had those bad experiences, maybe uh, <laughs> with going to the doctor and now, you know, it's taken a lot for them uh, to reach out again? And, and how do you, I guess, start the process over, Jessica?
3: Yeah. So I've had folks who have, you know, delayed their appointment with, you know, me until they've, you know, met someone who knows me and then is like, okay, fine. I've been putting this off for years. I'll actually go. Or I had somebody just the other day who had waited four years because their first experience with a dietitian, uh, um, the dietitian made an assumption about their culture based on the kimchi that they had been eating. And they were just like flummoxed about how, you know, unaware people in the medical field can be about food. So, yes, also... um, Larger folks with eating disorders often will delay coming into, me, uh, into my office because they think that they're just gonna be told to lose weight. So I think um, in the initial you know, stages, building the relationship is something um, that I work on and also the simple thing. So having uh, furniture that's obviously accessible to all body sizes. I often have uh, things on the wall, uh, folks of color, you know, my queerness is oftentimes on display. My partner is in there. Um, just making like these subtle cues I find um can make people more comfortable. Mm.
1: When we think about eating disorders and disordered eating, you know how have you seen all these fad diets and social media <laughs> affecting Ugh. our uh, you know our our uh, understanding of what it means to be healthy, Jessica?
3: Right. So again, the understanding, I think you had it perfectly right there, our understanding of what it means to be healthy, right? Which just completely moves, removes us from the equation. And for everybody out who out there who's really interested in learning more, uh, Dr. Sabrina Strings wrote a book, uh, Fearing the Black Body, the Racial Origins of Fat Phobia, which takes us back centuries um, to how, uh, white women were, you know, fearful and we were just fearful of black women who tended to be larger. And so how whiteness became a proxy or thinness became a proxy to whiteness and how everybody was striving to be so far away from um, black women. So there's a lot of history there that we're just looking to uncover. And then so our fad diets are just reinforcing this message because, again, who can afford to, you know, eat so many, say, organic fruits and vegetables, you know, grass fed meats and all of this silly stuff that we're told to eat on a regular basis. Again, it's not, you know, the majority of the population. It's those folks with money. And then we look to those folks with money and Gwyneth Paltrow and goop for like what health (laughs) looks like, not what health actually is.
1: Mm. And can I ask when we think about you know, so often what is healthy food? Uh, I mentioned earlier in the show, you know, I've, I've had an experience with a dietitian, and um, my parents are from India. And so I grew up with uh, mostly an Indian diet. And, and mm-hmm. you know, now I'm being told that, you know, white rice is bad, right. but really curry good. on brown rice just doesn't taste good, Jessica. <laughs>
3: (laughs) No, it's not the same food at all. Um, And over 50% of the world's population uses white rice as a staple. And I find so often in the U.S. when I'm talking to people and, you know, they have their good and bad theories about food, I will say you know are people in india or china or japan or countries in africa like inherently unhealthy because they write white rice and the clients will say no absolutely not and then think the rules are different in the u.s and again going back to you know colonialism and racism in this country has really shaped so many things including how we feel about white rice
1: Mm. And so as we look at the, the new year coming, uh, when you're working with clients who, you know, maybe want to change up uh, their diet or are trying in, in their way uh, to get healthy, you know, what are some what are some guidance that you would give our listeners uh, instead of thinking about all the things to take out that they're, they're right, normally eating? Right, that's
3: the perfect, like say way to be, I always look to what you can add in. Mm. You know, there are so many great options you mentioned again. Um just so many flavors, colors, other things that you want to you know experiment with, um, get that sourdough starter or whatever it is that you want to have fun with. Like how can in 2021 be the year that we stop with the good and the bad? and we just try and play around and figure out what we like to eat without the uh, narrative of what we should and shouldn't be doing.
1: Mm. My guest is Jessica Wilson here on Where We Live, a dietitian in private practice, co-host of My Black Body podcast, as we talk about this call to the field of nutrition to be more representative and to acknowledge people from different cultures and identities. Coming up, a Connecticut dietitian will join our conversation. We'll find out how she's working to help clients find peace with their bodies and with food. You can join us too, 888-720-9677. That's 888-720-WMPR or you can find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. This is Where We Live on Connecticut Public Radio. I'm Lucy Nopithanshul, broadcasting remotely. Now, 2020 has been a year. It's time for a break on the next Where We Live. If your holiday plans are looking different than normal, we've got you. We'll talk with NPR TV critic Eric Deggins to get his recommendations on the best shows to binge watch. And of course, we want to hear what you're watching, that conversation tomorrow. Now, my guest today is Jessica Wilson, a dietitian in private practice and co-host of My Black Body Podcast. And joining us now also on Zoom is Brianna Theus, a registered dietitian here in Connecticut. Brianna, welcome to our show.
0: Hi, Lucy. Thank you so much for having me.
1: So we were learning about Jessica's uh, journey in the field of nutrition. How long have you been a dietitian?
0: I have been a dietitian for two and a half years now.
1: Mm. And so tell me about your exposure. You know, what drew you to this field? And what have you been noticing about uh, the New York Times calls this field uh, the good old girls club?
0: yeah (laughs) yeah so i actually got started in this field because um my family is from haiti so i really wanted to work with people in third world countries and help them get more access to food Um, and then that eventually morphed into me working with people with eating disorders which i guess is kind of similar in a way helping people um, gain access to food um, emotionally um, and through their mental health um Mm -hmm. And I do 100% agree. Um, Through my schooling, it was very uh, not diverse at all. Um, I did not learn about other cultures. I did not learn about other ways people would eat. Um, It was very like, this is how somebody is going to present. And this is what you're going to do with that person.
1: Mm. And so who are the clients that you're helping today? Are many of them people of color?
0: Yes, so I actually currently am working in a treatment facility and I also have my own private practice. So in my private practice, I work with um, BIPOC patients. I also try to work with people who are in larger bodies, um, LGBTQIA people, um, men. So anyone who is not really able to see themselves in um, eating disorders, because when you see a picture of someone with an eating disorder, it's typically a young white woman.
1: Mm. And so what has been their experience, uh, you know, seeking help uh, over the years? And, you know, how has that impacted uh, their, you know, their journey to try to get healthier, Brianna?
0: Um, they have really struggled to get help because of what I just mentioned, because mm-hmm. they're not typically seen as a typical eating disorder patient, quote unquote. Um, so they are aren't as prone to go get the help that they need. They say, oh, you know, that's not for me. I'm perfectly fine. I don't need to do this. Mm.
1: And so when we think about uh, ways to to help people, uh, depending on their personal experience and the fact that everyone's upbringing is different, uh, what kinds of food they eat uh, uh, that they're able to access or afford. And so what are some ways that you wanna see uh, your field improve, Brianna?
0: I think really the most important thing we need to do is to listen to the client and listen to the person. What are you eating? Why are you eating it? What are typical foods that are part of your culture? Um, Why don't you eat certain things? So maybe somebody doesn't eat kale, then we are not gonna force them to eat kale, right? Or somebody normally eats curry, then we're gonna see how we can incorporate curry into their diet. Um, So really the main thing is just listening to the patient or the client. Mm-hmm. And what about
1: cost? Because not everybody even is able to access uh, coming to see a registered dietitian, Brianna. Can you talk about the barriers there?
0: Yeah. So definitely a lot of barriers when it comes to cost, um, dietitians and other other medical services can be pretty pricey. Um, so when it comes to that, it's going to be mostly accepting insurance, which is something that I have kind of debated on back and forth, um, because insurance doesn't always pay what it needs to, or insurance can be very limiting. Um, However, for people um, who need to see a dietitian, that's that's really one of the biggest barriers when it comes to that, especially in the BIPOC community.
1: Mm. Jessica, I'm wondering what you'd like to say about this issue of cost and, and accessibility.
3: Yes, and oftentimes the only ways that say um, uh, dietitian visits can be covered is if people have insurance. And as we know, uh, especially now when people's jobs are their primary for uh, source of insurance, um, a lot of people don't have access. So there are opportunities. You mentioned I'm in private practice, so I have a uh, more equity. Uh, model of pricing so white folks or those who are more privileged can pay more so that uh black and brown folks can pay less because again historically um black and brown folks are the ones who are less likely to seek um dietitian services Uh, Brianna, some of our
1: listeners might be surprised to hear what you shared uh, that, you know, uh, people of color, especially LGBTQI, um, they are, uh, it's common to have disordered eating or eating disorders. Mm -hmm. Can you talk a little bit more about that?
0: Yeah. Um, I mean, especially in the trans community, um, their body image is, that's something that they really struggle with a lot. Um, and in the BIPOC community, a lot of people have eating disorders, but again, that's just not something that we see. It's not something that is shown in the media. It is not represented in, um, in treatment facilities. When you go to a treatment facility, it is mostly young white women. Um, and that's what I am seeing in my job. So that's why I really wanted to create that space where I am able to accept anybody into, into my practice and where I can also relate to them. So I am also a black woman. So I know what it's like for somebody to tell me that, um, I can't eat, sir. I can't eat foods for my culture. I know what mm-hmm. that's like. Um, so yeah, that's why I wanted to create that space to make sure that people know that, yes, you can have an eating disorder and you can have treatment and you can get help for it.
1: Again, we're talking with dietitians today, Brianna Theus, who's a registered dietitian in Connecticut, and Jessica Wilson, a dietitian in private practice and co-host of My Black Body Podcast. You can join us if you have a question, 888-720-9677, or find us on Facebook and Twitter at Where We Live. Uh, Brianna, we talked about why representation matters, and I'm just wondering, as uh, someone who works in Connecticut, I believe you do most of your uh, practice uh, just outside. Uh, the border in New York, but what does the what do uh, the dietitians in our state uh, in terms of representation? Do you see it being diverse or no?
0: Uh, not at all. <laughs> <laughs> uh, there is not a lot of diversity in Connecticut um, when it comes to dietitians, which is I guess that's also one of the reasons why I wanted to start practicing because I I mean I think 2.6 percent of dietitians are black in the whole in the whole nation, I think it is. Um, so that's one of the reasons why I wanted to start practicing so that we can have that diversity and representation out there.
1: Mm. Uh, Jessica, we mentioned the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics uh, earlier. Uh, they're now uh, working on this, uh, this issue representation. I mean, where where do you see this going now that it's getting more exposure?
3: I wouldn't say they're working on it. Mm. I would say that they would say that they've been working on it, right? (laughs) Like, yes, this is already in the works, we are aware, but On the outside, uh, I don't see anything changing. I see a lot of lip service to this concern. Um, I also see a, you know, we need to increase the pipeline, uh, but are we increasing the pipeline to a field that is historically white, centers white folks, and is, you know, championed by white women? You know, is that what, you know, we need, or do we need an overhaul of the field first and then welcome people in um, to a system that actually is not harmful?
1: Mm. I've mentioned that excellent uh, piece by uh, Priya Krishna from the New York Times about this very issue we're talking about today. Uh, And in her story, she mentions even funding for dietetics programs at HBCUs has dropped. And when we think about uh, the exposure uh, to all people that are interested in this field and and it's kind of limited in terms of where they can go, uh, Jessica.
3: Yes, and not only is, are the didactic programs limited, but getting into an internship post your undergrad is becoming incredibly uh, difficult. On top of that, they've add or added another master's or you know additional education component, and none of these things are paid. So if you you know have bills you know, and don't have family support or your student loans are already through the roof, taking on additional burden for these things um, is really hard. So there's a lot of gatekeeping in the field that keeps a lot of folks out. Mm.
1: You know, I have asked both of you, your personal experience and how you're helping uh, clients. But as we look forward, I'll start with you, Brianna. How do you see, uh, what will it look like to change the culture in dietetics today?
0: Well, I think with with everything that has been going on in the world, I feel like a lot more dietitians are trying to listen more. They're trying to educate themselves. They're trying to—I mean, they won't understand, but they're they're trying to be able to um, learn so that they can speak to their clients in different ways and they can treat their clients in different ways. Um, so, I think that's definitely the first step that needs to be done. Is is more people need to just educate themselves about what's going on so that we can treat the clients in, in the way that we need to be able to treat them. Um, and then when it comes to schooling, I think we need to, one, I, we need more diverse um, professors. We need more diverse education. Um, we need to teach about different cultures in nutrition, instead of just the same thing over and over again, about what we need to do with, with the same type of person.
1: Mm. And Jessica, final thoughts?
3: gosh, um, I really like Bri- Brianna's optimism there, you know. <laughs> I I am, I'm working on more, you know, the grassroots, like how can we help the folks who are already in the field looking at harm, starting over, learning about trauma, learning about the impacts of these things on our, you know, everyday life and on us when we're prescribing diets or engaging in weight stigma. So I think Brianna and I would make a good team going forward. Yes. <laughs>
1: Well, thank both of you uh, so much for coming on uh, today's uh, show. It's been really interesting and I appreciate your time. Jessica Wilson, a dietitian in private practice, co-host of My Black Body Podcast. Jessica, thanks so much.
3: You're welcome.
1: Also, Brianna Theas, a registered dietitian in Connecticut. Brianna, thank you.
0: Thank you so much.
1: I'm Lucy Nopithanchel. Today's show produced by Tess Terrible. Our technical producer is Kat Pastor. Now you can download Where We Live anytime on your favorite podcast app. Thanks so much for listening and hope that you're back with us tomorrow.